You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Many ages ago, when this ancient planet was not quite so ancient, long before man recorded his history, it was the time of Middle-earth, when man shared his days with elves, dwarves, wizards, goblins, dragons, and hobbits. In the lands of Middle-earth, in an area known as the Shire, there was a village named Hobbiton. There, in a hole in the ground, lived a hobbit. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Rankin Bass Lord of the Rings Retrospective Series. Well, you have put your foot in it this time. Join Garrett. I am strong. 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 Matt. While I look foul and feel fair, is that it? And Adam. The first time that I've ever feared for him as they look at the three animated films that started the wheels turning on what would eventually become one of the most lucrative franchises in film history. I was frozen today! Why are there lawsuits connected to these films? I said you have no choice, Sam. Why does Ralph Bashi have such a fire up his ass against Rankin Bass and pretty much everyone? Gone again? I wish I was a wizard. And what did Peter Jackson take from these films and then incorporate right into his? Is that not enough? Find out as you listen to the one podcast that rules them all. Coming up, courtesy of Binge Media. Look! Trolls! Lord of the Rings. Released November 15th, 1978. Budget was $4 million. Box office total of $33.7 million. And this was directed by Ralph Bakshi. Oh boy. So The Hobbit comes out. And then this is released a year later. And we have what has come to be known as studios fighting for the rights of something. And then there's a race to get that one thing out. And then there's a battle between the two. And then there's lawsuits between the two. Boy, so much went on to get this released along with that Hobbit movie. Matt, were you familiar with this at all before we started this retrospective? Yes, I was. Although I had only seen it one time. And it was by happenstance, as a matter of fact, because... Back in the day, I used to stay at a close friend's house, you know, on weekends and spend the night. And as an active video gamer, they had the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, Two Towers game for the GameCube. Mm, and I was through. Mm, that's the, a fun I one. Through, yeah, I, I was flipping through the game collection that, that my friend Mike had, and I saw Lord of the Rings font on the spine of the case. So I pull it out, I see it's animated. First, I think it's a video game, because I knew there was a Hobbit game as well that had nothing to do with the Jackson movies whatsoever. I realized it was a movie, so I asked my buddy, I'm like, hey, can we watch this? I'm probably 11, maybe 12. He's like, we can, but it's not It's not very good. <laughs> That's exactly what he told me. 
as a 12-year-old, and he was a massive, hardcore Lord of the Rings fan, to the point where I almost didn't want to bring it up, because I'd have to hear a 20-minute dissertation before he put it in, <laughs> before he actually put it in the DVD player, which is what I was subjected to. So I've only seen it that one time, so it's been a good almost 15 years since I sat down and actually watched this particular adaptation. Adam, you grew up on The Hobbit TV movie. Yeah. You said we, we gave it a pretty decent review last week. How familiar were, were you with Ralph Bakshi's version? Not nearly as familiar. I'd seen it, and I think I've only seen it because of seeing The Hobbit. I don't remember when. I know I had seen it before, probably bits and pieces since, but I haven't seen this movie. Let me see. If I am uh, don't want to say how much older than that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, God, probably close to 30 years since I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a really long time. Even as familiar as I am with Batchy and and his other work, this one didn't go back to revisit it. I'll leave it at that so far. Wow. Let's talk about Ralph Bakshi. Um, he's a guy whose work I am kind of familiar with, only because, as Adam mentioned last week, I used to get that big, big Leonard Malton book. <laughs> um, when I was reading the reviews, I, I'd see that there was a little review of an animated movie called Fritz the Cat. And I'm like, what the hell is Fritz this? The cat. I'm reading it, and apparently it was like the first animated movie to get an X rating. It was just mm -hmm. extremely rude, crude. Never did see it, but he had a lot of notoriety. So, of course, this is the guy you would get to <laughs> make the big <laughs> animated version of one of the biggest books, even of that time. And then the only other thing, I'm familiar with this guy. I did see one of his movies in the theaters. And Adam, Got I know I, you know where I'm going with this. Gotta be. Yep. I saw Cool World in theaters <laughs> with an animated Kim Basinger. And and baby that is, Brad Pitt. Yeah, baby Brad Pitt. That is, oh God, you talk about just a crazy, <laughs> crazy movie. Uh, you know, I think it was trying to be like the rude version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Absolutely. And it was, that is a kooky, kooky film. Uh, a movie that he got very frustrated on because, according to him, they rewrote a ton of it. It wasn't actually his vision. But, God, that, that movie, I, I didn't rewatch it for this. I was planning on it, but I was a little busy this week. It, what a weird movie that was. Matt, are you familiar with Ralph Bakshi's work? Yes, I am. I, I saw Fritz the Cat when I was probably in high school, and I'm like, is this why furries are a thing? <laughs> That's all I could think of. And, and you're right that it was... Uh, controversial is being kind because yeah. no other studio except for Warner Brothers at the time was willing to take it on. And it's basically like if Leisure Suit Larry was a anthropomorphic cat who <laughs> hit on college students and, and rampant drug use, like it's just yeah, it was sort of a satire on you know co college life at the time. Uh, and that and his movie Coonskin, which I've also seen, are surprisingly fighting when it comes to what they have to say as far as, you know, the messages behind it. So I've, I'm relatively familiar with his work. I'm surprised the guy's still alive, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I thought he died. Yeah. Um, and I've never seen Core World, so that, that's one that I may or may not check out. You, not it's, like it's worth the watch. It's, it's, it's worth an interest watch at minimum. Yeah, keep it on the background. Don't don't sit and watch it. <laughs> You'll probably have a pretty good time with it. This was a lot of people's big break. One person in particular, 
Tim Burton. This was his first job in Hollywood. He was an animator on this. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of things going on here. We have John Hurt as a voice in this. I, I got to be honest. You know, Adam, you said you'd seen it years ago. I had never seen it before this podcast. So I had no idea that Anthony Daniels was in this. Like, I, I had zero clue about any of this before I started watching it a little bit just because I knew it existed because I know Jackson has referenced it in interviews and such in the lead up to The Lord of the Rings. But other than that, I, I, I wasn't familiar with this at all. So... That's what I have going in. Let's go ahead and just jump right into the movie, boys, unless you guys have anything else to add. Nope. I have no, no additional preamble. All right. So we get another backstory about The Ring, pretty much what we'll be getting in Jackson's adaptation. In fact, I was surprised at just how similar this is to the Peter Jackson adaptation. This is a pretty interesting preamble. I, I like that we see it in shadows. Smeagol's killing Isidore, and he hides in caves, and then we see that the ring fell off Smeagol's finger, and Bilbo finds it. Having all this in shadows was a great way to tell the story. How do you guys feel about, about the preamble to this film? For me, it two different parts on it. I think that it's a quick way to explain a lot. However... By explaining so much, it also reinforces what I don't like about the source material anyway. I mean, it's just, as it's breaking it all down, there's 19 fucking rings and then a master ring. Like, I don't give a shit right off the bat. Mm. And then the parts that are in shadow but are starting out live action, it it's awkward. I will say at least right off the bat, you know, that this is not The Hobbit. They're making it pretty clear that, you know, this is not that kid's version that you might have seen a year before, that they are doing something different here. I tried to watch this with as l much distance, basically the equivalent of the Shire of Mount Doom level of distance from the Peter Jackson movies when I was doing this. But it, it's very difficult considering how much Jackson was influenced with. That's nice. <laughs> nice way of putting it. Um, like the shot compositions he comes up with in his movies, a lot of the dialogue is almost lifted. I imagine much of it's from the book, but looking at it as a piece of animation, it, I'm sort of like Adam, where my problem is this probably goes into the books because I couldn't tell you the last time I even picked those up. What makes the One Ring so much? more powerful than all the other ones? Why were they created in the first place? Were they just trinkets for the various races? Why did some get more than others? I, I, I find that fantasy in particular, you really got to sell me on the why and the how of the universe that you're inhabiting and that you're expanding upon. This prologue only works for me because I've seen the Peter Jackson movies especially Fellowship, considerably more than I've seen this one. I like the color scheme. I like the red backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I like that you never really see Sauron, you know, and all his decked out gothic glory. But it's fine. I'm not going to say it's great, but I'm also not going to shit on it. How familiar are you guys with rotoscoping? Very. All right. The only other exposure I've had to it was Linkletter did a couple of movies with it, uh, Waking Life and The Scanner Darkly. Scanner Darkly, I actually really like. Waking Life, I don't know if I ever finished, honestly. That's what Bakshi used for this. And I find the animation in this, especially when we get to the battle scenes, uh, this is 1978 animation. If you would have done this like Disney style, I don't think it would have looked as good as it does. I think this looks pretty good. What do you guys think? The battles, absolutely. I mean, yeah. 
especially when we, we get to the third, you know, the big Helm's Deep sequence. But the advantageous component that Bakshi has is that when you look at Disney's track record around that time, they really weren't doing movies on the scale of this. And mm-hmm. the way those characters were drawn play much more to kids. You know, the, the voices are considerably more cartoonish. The characters are animated to be a lot broader with their appearances. I think the rotoscoping here is inconsistent, though. Sometimes it looks great. Sometimes the stand-in actors, it's clear they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing in certain shots because it looks Mm -hmm. like they're standing there doing nothing. And then other times, the more humanistic components, when you see them, are the more distracting pieces when you watch the, the actual movie like it's it's very clear the peaks and valleys of quality in the animation that's really like i think it really is the misty mountains as far as consistency because there's no there's no baseline really like some stuff looks great and some stuff you can tell it was a product of its time one i'm gonna check off something i have on my list for those that want to understand that misty mountain reference google it because matt that was fucking brilliant so i love you for that <laughs> i love animation i've dealt deep into its history. Where I live out here in the California Bay Area, I've been to the Walt Disney Museum, God knows how many times, the Cartoon Art Museum out here in San Francisco, and many other things. I hate this rotoscoping job that's done. I really do. And for people that have come out and be like, oh, it's a pioneering style and all that bullshit, because this shit was being done in the late 1800s. So it's not new. And I can't tell if he was just I'm getting this out quick, and I don't feel like animating the whole thing. I don't know. It feels desperate. It feels lazy. And with all the work that goes into it, that's not an insult on the animators. It's it's an insult on the decision to do it. Because the majority of the time, I can't stand it, and it rips me out of everything I'm watching. Well, he did do it for uh, future films, but he did say in later years that he regretted doing it because I think for the reasons that you said, Adam, I don't think he was able to put as much effort into it as he wanted to because, believe it or not, Bakshi did really want to do this material justice. He went and visited the Tolkien estate. He talked to his daughter saying, look, I want to do what I can to make this as good as possible. Tolkien's daughter took him up to the room where he used to write and Bakshi was like just so taken in by it and he was just like, I'm going to do what I can. I think this decision, given the animation at the time, I think it was a good decision. But I agree with Matt, too, in that some of it just doesn't look right. And I don't know if it's because they don't know what they're doing. I I don't know. But it doesn't come off as well as I think they were hoping. So Bilbo says he's going away while Gandalf comes and asks Bilbo for the ring so that he can give it to Frodo's to take care of. And then we cut to 17 years later in the Shire. Frodo is waking up when Gandalf comes over, and we're getting close-ups of Frodo's feet as they walk. This is pretty good stuff. I I, I do like the intro here. What do we feel about these characterizations, because we're going to see it again, of Frodo and Gandalf here, guys? The change in animation style threw me off, because I remember it being honing so much closer to the Rankin Bass. Mm -hmm. But I think that was just because in the last couple decades... Warner Brothers has sold these as kind of a set, the three of these that we're going to discuss, and they're not. But they've played it up that, oh, yeah, these were together, and and they're really, really not. So it took me a little bit to understand and even accept that they look so different. It's, I mean, they're hobbits, but it's still a pretty drastic change. And I still don't like that the heights and the size differences, as you were supposed to get between these characters, aren't nearly as much as they should be. So let me... Let me preface everything I'm about to say by 
recognizing that I do like this movie more than the Ricky Bass movie. Let me, let me put that out there at the beginning. And I dare say I like this characterization of Frodo more than I like the one in the Peter Jackson movies. Wow. Here's the reason why. In these moments with Gandalf and throughout the movie, he's got a lot more initiative than he takes on, and he actually can defend himself. Unlike in the Peter Jackson movies where everyone does everything for him and he drops his sword at the drop of a hat, mm-hmm. um, I, I think he's he's too much of a damsel in distress or a character that doesn't really have much going for him in the Jackson film. So I like that this one's a little bit more outgoing. And I don't understand the 17-year gap. That makes yeah. no fucking sense to me. Mm-hmm. Gandalf knows that this is this all-powerful device that should be destroyed. I'm just going to let Frodo hang on to it for 17 years, knowing that they could come to the Shire at any moment and destroy it. I, I attribute that just to the, there's so much they had to condense into a two-hour movie. It takes so many shortcuts, much like the Rankin Bass one. But here, I think it's as big of an issue because so much of it is not explained, and there's really no character intros. Like, Frodo and Gandalf are just at Bilbo's party. We don't see them actually talking to each other or having much conversation with, like, one or two lines. I think the movie really suffers from just too much content. Gandalf asks for the ring and tells Frodo that the ring is evil. Not even a dragon's fire can harm it. And we get the one ring speech from him before telling him that he would be tempted to turn evil if he were to have the ring. And then tells him to get rid of it, saying his new name is going to be Mr. Underhill. Nice Underhill. little Underhill. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, they're Underhill. That always makes me smile. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice little pun. As Matt said, they have to fit so much in here. I do think it's wise to give it to Gandalf. Again, this is a this is a pattern that, that Jackson's going to follow later. But I think here in this particular movie in 1978, for people who haven't picked up the book, this is a pretty good intro to what we're going to be getting. Even if, as Matt said, we're not getting a real good intro to the characters. Gandalf, he's so overly animated with the twirling. and the He pulls out the Harrison Ford finger uh, pointing of doom throughout most of this movie. Like, it, it's kind of ridiculous. He really does. Yeah. That's one of the problems with the animation is that I would compare it to something like Tiny Toons, where the script's fine, but the characters are overly animated with their movements and their, their even their facial expressions. Like, there's moments where Frodo's just looking at him like, I don't know what the fuck you're saying, and it's unintentionally hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's simplistic, and it gets it going, and for that, I'm happy. What I'm struck with early is... And it complimented the animation last time. I think I complimented it more. This one, though, I'm going to compliment the animated backgrounds. I think the background plates in this movie are fucking astoundingly beautiful. And a lot of that is Tim Burton. Uh, he's background artist here. And I think the reason that I might, and this is going to come up later on in this movie as well, a lot of what he did here was directly ripped off when he was working for Disney and doing The Black Cauldron. And a lot of stuff is taken from this for that movie that he then subsequently got fired from Disney for. I'm struck by at least the back. I'm distracted, actually, by how beautiful the background looks when I'm glossing over the character interactions. You know what else this movie has in common with the Black Cauldron? Mm-hmm. John, John Hurts and both of them. Yep. We then meet Sam, who acts different than the Sean Austin portrayal. <laughs> This cat is kind of off the walls. If the other hobbits are high on pipe weed, this guy seems to have found the cocaine stash. Uh, he's kind of all <laughs> over the place. Wow. The, uh, I guess Tolkien has his own Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I also don't know if this is supposed to be... If you notice the way Sam is characterized, I don't know if this is meant to be autistic 
because he's very withdrawn when he's not with trying to bang Frodo. He he looks different from all the other hobbits. Like he looks like he got the ugly fell out of the tree and hit every branch on the way down. I find his characterization just utterly obnoxious and borderline insufferable. Especially because of how well in you know you know what I could say because I'm not on that set of podcasts. But, you know, Sean Austin in Fellowship and those other movies, he's the fucking hero. And I do like his portrayal of Samwise a lot. So especially when you contrast it to this, it's just like, nope, don't give a shit. Let's do a staple I do on this podcast, which is talk about the score. Now, Bakshi wanted to use Led Zeppelin for the action scenes. (laughs) 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 But his producer, who clashed with Bakshi the entire time. I mean, these two did not get along at all. And the producer actually went on to say this was the hardest project he's ever had to work on. They clashed and he said, nope, you're going to get, we're going to get an epic score for this. I think the score for this is actually pretty good. A fun fact though, that that Zeppelin members, they were known fans of the series. Over the Hills mm-hmm. and Far Away, Battle of Evermore. They're just two songs based on the Tolkien books that they did. So I don't know if they would have gotten the rights for cheap and then the producer just backed out or what, but they decided not to go that route. And I'm kind of happy because otherwise it would kind of sound like that 1986 Transformers movie we did, Matt, where we have this huge rock music <laughs> going on where while all these battles are going on. Uh, what do you guys think of the music of this? We're speaking of Stephen King, it'd be maximum overdrive all over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the compositions. I really like the opening orchestra where it starts off kind of dark and then it gets kind of celebratory. I think everything works. I'm never taken out with the music. I think it's appropriate given what you're seeing on screen, but it sucks that it exists in the same world with Howard Shore's source. Yeah. See, for me, it's like I'm fine with it, but like most things in this, and this is where we're going to battle of some three armies along the way. I just find it so much lesser than what we discussed last week. And it's hard for me to, to not recognize that when I'm watching more in the middle earth series. Wow. Gandalf gets in a war of words with Saruman about the power of the ring and who has it. We see some life in Hobbit town as they start walking away. And we see the ring race on the hunt for Frodo and his gang. Before, before you move on this Gandalf and Saruman. Mm -hmm. This is a scene that, Live action wise, I've never given two shits about, and I actually like it here quite a bit. Really? I do. I think it's kind of cool. I think we actually see some wizards doing some wizard shit, and they try to animate that a little bit differently. It's, you know, it's kind of mystic, it's kind of cosmic, and I actually get something out of this interaction where live action, when you got two amazing actors, I don't, but I. I dug this one quite a bit. It's it's a short scene, and I know that because you're trying to gloss over it. But actually, yeah. I like the interaction between these two. And it is it's, a very me, short it, scene. It, I didn't think it was worth pausing for, but good Lord. I, I, I'm shocked by that, honestly, because I've never heard this being looked at as better than what Jackson did. But, I understand Saruman's machinations more from this little scene than I do from what Peter Jackson gave me. Needless to say, I take umbrage with all of Adam's... Uh, <laughs> assessments. I am totally the opposite. I get nothing from the Saruman at all. First of all, he looks like Dumbledore, and that takes me out instantly. Yes, he does. Specifically, the Richard Harris Dumbledore. And B, I don't know what it is with this movie. They stop pronouncing the S, and after a while, they just call him Aramon. Well, funny you say that. All right, they. Yep. They were going to go with Saruman and Saron. And then the producer said, well, people will get confused by that. So they did change it to Aaron. But 
at the last minute, they decided to change it back. But by that point, they had already filmed the scenes of them saying Aaron, so they didn't go back to re-record the scenes. And, and, and to be fair, Saruman's role in the Jackson films is significantly bigger yeah. than it is in the books. Here, because there, there's so much they have to do, there's no time to have a major villain which is mm-hmm. why it's difficult for me to care about the actual journey because I feel like the obstacles that are put in front of them after, you know, once they all get the band together, they get through them so quickly that I never feel like anyone's in danger. And maybe part of that's because I know, spoiler alert, who lives and who dies. But yeah. it's like watching chapter skip on a DVD where I always feel like there's stuff missing. Matt, with that double door reference from now on, you're going to be taking Dolores Umbridge with everything I have to say. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I, wow puns galore on this podcast I'm proud of that one Fuck off. <laughs> and I thought my jokes were bad <laughs> going back to this ring race searching for Frodo scene I, I love the background noise if the ring race is on the hunt it's like a low key hum I thought that was pretty cool for a movie that was kind of advertised as kind of like kid friendly it has some dark moments and this would kind of scare me if I was a little kid seeing this movie I can't stand the way they look though yeah. This is great. You guys can't stand the way they look. I can't stand the way they sound. Wow. <laughs> and especially their movements where they like slumber around like zombies as soon as he gets off the horse. Mm-hmm. And then when he's sniffing for Frodo, I think it's overly exaggerated. Yeah. Oh, wow. it's amazing. You want to talk about things that Jackson stole. The hobbits hiding under that tree, mm. as I'm reading on yep. it, nowhere in the book. And he lifted it exactly like the full fucking shot he lifts and it's kind of known as a classic shot in the movie, the live mm-hmm. action movie. And it's ripped right from this. Yeah. And the reason why you know that it is ripped is because in the, it is in the book, but in the book, Frodo's hiding by himself. Yeah. They're separated. Yeah. They're separated. And in both this movie and the Jackson version, they're all under that log together. So, you know, and he's been upfront about that. He said that, mm-hmm. although Bakshi has taken, big offense to it and said that Jackson doesn't give him the credit he deserves for doing what he did. I mean, there, there's a little war of words there going on there too. Probably a cankerous filmmaker who is upset that he did this first. But I, I agree with you. I, I It is lifted, but I think, well, and I'll get to that when I get to Alex and Jack, but I, I think it's done very well in that too. We see Pippin and Mary, and Frodo starts questioning who he can trust, as even his friends seem untrustworthy when it comes to the ring. Though this passes and they remain on trail. We cut to a pub where Frodo and his friends are enjoying a bit of booze. And boys, let's mark this as a place to visit in future Lollapaloozas. This place seems pretty cool. What are you guys thinking here? We, you know, we, we're introduced to Pippin and Mary. We're, we got, we're, we're going to the pub here. We're kind of moving along. You know, This movie is 2 hours 15 minutes. I think we're moving at an okay pace. What about you guys? You say they're introduced. It's more like they just show up. Yeah, they show up. Yeah, yeah. good point. And it's really weird how they're entirely comic relief in the Peter Jackson movies. And here they have no personality whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this pub sequence is it's pretty cool. But this way the rotoscoping really bothers me when they, you can clearly tell it's, the, it's actual people. And they're dancing around. There's a lot of close-up shots. So it kind of takes me out of Middle Earth when I see actual people in this context. Yeah, and this is the part that I feel the exact same way. When I know I'm looking at a person that was filmed and then not even animated over, just kind of barely colored over, is when I'm just like, nope, fuck it. Like, I literally turn into fuck it mode really quick. Uh, you're going to turn to that a lot during the King retrospective. 
Frodo, <laughs> Frodo uses his Mr. Underhill, Underhill name, and they start doing their version of karaoke. They find Strider, a.k.a. Aragon, who says Gandalf asked him to watch out for Frodo. He offers to help Frodo and offers to accompany them. Aragon. This is a different version of this character. What, what do you guys think of Aragon in this? There's no big dragon in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Speaking of Harry Potter, it's Aragorn, not Aragon. <laughs> I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to save you from yourself. That's an adaptation I'm not doing, by the way. <laughs> right now. Fuck that. Of all the characters, Aragorn feels like an improvement on the Jackson movies, much like Frodo. I buy this guy as a king in the way that I do not buy Viggo Mortensen at all. I like the way he's done. It's weird, though. I feel like he was designed to give, and I hope this doesn't come across bad, but almost like a Native American leader to lead them where they're going. Like, to me, that's how he's animated and drawn and carries himself, and I, I couldn't get past that, and I don't mind it at all. I like Aragorn in the live-action movies, but I think that's just because I like the actor so much. But I, I like his characterization here. I think he's a cool character. Aragorn says there's a hill called Weathertop, which they will move towards in the morning, and promises he will never succumb to the power of the ring. There are more ring wraiths on the hunt, and they appear in Frodo's room to try to take out the Fellowship. Another shot that's pretty much lifted by Peter Jackson later on. Mm -hmm. But they're nowhere to be found. And I do like how Bakshi kind of expands on this presence. He makes it seem like Mordor is, a, is around them. This, for the first time in this movie, really got me engaged. Because we have the red all surrounding it like we did in the beginning. This was really well done. I, I Again, I'd never seen this before, and I, this really took me in. Nope. Wow. I'm wishing that I'm watching this at a faster speed so it would fucking move along. Hmm. <laughs> Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Can't go with you there, dude. I, I know. I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be yeah. under a hill on my own. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be over the hills and far away. But, <laughs> but, yeah. And part of it is when it flashes back, you know, when I see them getting chased by the riders, great. I'm seeing a couple people on a horse that are colored in like my nine-year-old did it. So I'm just, nah. Nope. Mm. <laughs> I feel like Faye Dunaway in Chinatown where it's like, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. <laughs> I agree with Adam. At this point, I, I'm just waiting for them to actually get to fucking Rivendell because that's where the story actually begins. We get folk tales from Aragorn as Ring Race have found them again. They stand their ground as Frodo puts the ring on and is told to take it off. So does this just weaken him? That's one thing about this ring that and you guys pointed out at the beginning, like there's one ring to rule them all, right? After a bunch of these rings have been made. Why is it when he puts this on, it weakens him? Is it just taking over him? Is it a power thing? That's not explained, and I wish it was. You're asking the wrong guy when it comes to the, how does the ring actually work. From a visual standpoint, I like this representation of the other side, quote-unquote, than the, like the white hellscape that we get. In the Peter Jackson movies when Frodo puts on the ring, I, I think this is actually pretty cool. But again, Frodo actually tries to fight the ring race off instead of just falling down like he does when he's Elijah Wood. Mm -hmm. I do like that he's standing up not only for himself, but the crew at this point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the way that the, mecha the, the workings of the ring, I don't know. Yeah, he puts it on and he's seen, but they can't tell when he's carrying it because reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because... Evil corrupts, so therefore evil corrupts. I mean, he's had it for 17 fucking years, but now it's going to... Eh. Yep. Aragorn says that they must get to Rivendell soon, and I'm sure Adam agrees with that, as Frodo, <laughs> Frodo is indeed weak. 
But here's where we meet Legolas. Hey, there's a familiar character. So they keep walking and walking until they find Rivendell. They are pursued again, but Gandalf does say Frodo. So he, he goes back on his word and he thinks, he says, well, I, I can't follow you. Here he is, and he saves Frodo from danger. Kind of weird, and I know that's a big thing with this character. People say, well, he just comes and disappears as he wants, which is true. But I kind of like the way they, this was done, even if the animation on Gandalf, as mentioned earlier, wasn't that great. When he shows up without a reason, mm-hmm. I can't, even though it, yes, he's a wizard, he's mysterious, a wizard is never earlier, lady, right, when he, right when he means to, yada, yada, fuck off. But without a reason as to him doing something important, something important, even if it's not telling us what it is, even if it's, you know, you know, I had to deal with the Council of Man, just a fucking line. And without that, it seems so freaking lazy that it's just you're taking out your Gandalf ex machina to bring him back later when you want him to do something that you couldn't have figured out. Mm. Well, speaking of lazy, again, it's what do you do when a character in a Tolkien universe is screwed royally? The Eagles come and save him. Because that's how he gets on Saruman's fucking tower. Until they don't. Yeah, until they <laughs> until they don't. They're bigger dicks than than almost anybody. Because they're like the Eternals. They intervene when they feel like it. <laughs> so Frodo wakes up in a bed at Rivendale, and Gandalf tells of his experience with Saruman and his greed for the ring. He then meets up with Bilbo, who really, really wants to get his hands on the ring, and he apologizes. So Bilbo pretty much ends up as a story of what not to do with the ring. We get a dinner scene at Rivendell, and there is a debate as to what to do with the ring as the Fellowship is formed. Bilbo gives Frodo a vest and sword, and he depressingly reminisces about what he has seen. I like this because it's a setup, and we're going to find out exactly what this is called later, but I I do like how we are seeing Frodo get this so that it's not sword-proof machina, as... (laughs) As Adam said earlier, you know, about uh, about Gandalf. I, I thought this was pretty cool. Nice little setup. Yeah, and it's a callback to The Hobbit if you've read the book. That's the same yep. sword. And I think mm-hmm. he even gets the mithril vest, I think, from the dwarves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe so. I do like the explanation, too, because one thing I've never noticed before, and I've seen the live-action fellowship of, you know, a good number of times. I don't think I ever realized that it was Strider's heir that cut off the hand that the one ring was on. That we mm-hmm. saw at the opening prologue. I, I never got that that was Aragorn's ancestor. That it took this movie that I'm not having a good time with for me to understand that is at least a point in its favor. In Rivendell, though, there's nothing, there's almost no part of these elves that make them look elvish to me. And I wish there was something that just made them look like some fantasy elves. Mm. Yeah, you're not wrong. They just look like them and the, the men the race of man characters look exactly the same. Like, if anything, the hobbits look more like fucking what you think of as elves than the actual elves in this movie. Yeah, the the character designs when they were doing it really needed some more attention. And and by the way, if you you are uh, someone who likes Lord of the Rings, especially the Jackson movies, for their strong characterizations of the female characters, you are (laughs) going to despise this movie because Arwen... Is nowhere to be found. <laughs> it, it, the Aowen gets like one line later on. Yeah. So all the mm-hmm. female characters are fucking gone in this movie. <laughs> yep. You get Galadriel later. We get Galadriel. <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't really do anything. No. Like even no. in the Peter Jackson movie, she doesn't do shit. Yeah, nope. that was the joke. 
They gather more people as they make their way through a snowstorm. They are now attacked oh. by the uh, Watcher, and Gandalf gets them out of there. Pretty exciting little scene. Yeah, you, would, I mean, with the, you know, Fritz the Cat being X-rated, I thought we were getting some Lord of the Rings hentai here. To hentai. The mountain. <laughs> <laughs> we were getting bestiality, that's why he took the pony. <laughs> by this point, I feel like I am just watching the extuded film of the Peter Jackson movies. Like, someone mm, made this mm, on their mm. final cut as their college thesis for graduating animation school. I find it increasingly difficult the longer this movie goes on to distance it from the the live-action movies. Especially because the debate scene about the ring is so much shorter in this movie than it is there. Like, only two characters really speak, Boromir and Aragorn, in this portion. Whereas in the live-action one, yeah, they speak, but, like, you know, everyone else at least gets lines. I love this little scene with either Merry or Pippin. I'm not sure exactly which one. I don't know. But but Gandalf gets so frustrated at him that he starts just waving his arms around as his voice is trailing. You know, and I'm sure Adam's done this a number of times as a father. You know, if if, it's, <laughs> if your son spills some milk in the front room, you know, this is you just kind of storming off and being <laughs> losing your temper. I thought this was kind of funny. This ties into my thing, though, of Gandalf being overly animated. It, it's so exaggerated. It was like, hot, hot, hot. yeah, like, like it's it's so fucking ridiculous. And it's I, I want to say it's Pippin because he says fool of Took, and that, his last name is Took. Legolas starts getting grim readings as they are once again attacked. This time by orcs and a cave troll. We get some slow motion as Frodo is hit in the chest with an arrow, and this cave troll. Not exactly the imposing creature we'll see later on, is it? <laughs> nope. They are then pursued by a Balrog. And oh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, go. I was going to finish the scene, but go ahead. What were we going to say? I cannot believe that somebody allowed this shit on screen, on TV, <laughs> to fucking make its way onto celluloid. This is... I've seen people walk around with a Walmart fucking cape at Comic-Con and look better than this Balrog looks in this movie. <laughs> I don't... I do not understand how this is the fucking Balrog. I cannot believe it. For anybody that has not seen this, look it up from this movie. Look up what this fucking thing looks like. <laughs> oh, holy shit. I don't feel as strong as my co-host, but... He's not wrong in saying that it does not. <laughs> it looks like it looks like the worst example of. Remember when Photoshop first came out, uh-huh. and you you could clip different pieces together. So like, it looks like Aslan fucked the Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like some some dragon wing clip art attached to a fucking man's shadow form. It's really fucking bad. It's laughable. Like, you know, you look at, like, what did, like, Chernabog and fucking Fantasia, that's what the Balrog should look like. Yeah. And that was 19, that was 19 fucking 40 when they did 1941. that. 1941. Jesus. <laughs> well, it seems like this was the fight that Gandalf was waiting for. He, he tells Balrog that he cannot pass. <laughs> which, if you look at him, you obviously can see that he cannot. He fights the Balrog and gets dragged down a cliff with it. Frodo feels helpless without Gandalf, as Aragorn notices the mithril vest that Bilbo gave him. It seems at this point the story is picking up. We have the Balrog fight out of the way, much to Adam's chagrin. Adam, are you like just waiting for this to end at this point? Because you, you seem like you're not having a good time at all. Oh my god. 
Yeah. Which is funny, my notes here is, I think I just tuned out for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, oh, man. It does exist before. Like, as much as I'm not a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, I do like fantasy. I enjoy The Hobbit so, so much. But I'm finding this utterly laborious. And this is after I also stopped and took, like, a, like, I had to stop it one day and go back to it another day. Because once they got into the mountain, I was like, fuck it, I'm done today. <laughs> I just <laughs> off and came back another day. Wait for some of the miniseries we're going to get to. That's all I'll yep. say. <laughs> Matt, what about you? You don't sound like you're having as bad a time. Wow, what gave you that assumption? Just <laughs> kind of hard for me to be more miserable than Adam is. But <laughs> I will say they fixed one of my problems with the Jackson movie is where, why don't they try to rescue Gandalf when he's hanging? Yep. This one, there's no time. Although I question how the Balrog can fall, considering he has fucking wings. <laughs> I, hate, I hate this shit. I hate this kind of shit so much. <laughs> that is a really weird oversight, isn't it? <laughs> then when they get the Rivendell, and there's no tonal consistency, they go from mourning Gandalf's death to singing a song, and yes. Sam skipping rocks along the fucking puddle and trying to get in Galadriel's skirt. It's just... <laughs> this movie has no tone. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. And that, that was my ne- that was going to be my very next segue. Is we are mourning, but that doesn't take long at all. It takes like two seconds, and then they are visited by Galadriel, who is drawn like an earlier rendition of Shira. By the way, like what's up with this rendition? <laughs> and here's where we get a few of the psychedelic phases of the story. I come to expect from Bakshi as we get a montage of Frodo practicing fighting with Aragorn. But Galadriel gives Sam the option to leave if he wants, which he doesn't. And then she tells Frodo he is the footstep of doom. Frodo then offers her the ring, to which she laughs. This is all, Matt, you can hit it right on the head, dude. This is tonally way off. Adam, do you agree? I do. And, you know, maybe it's because they're cramming. I mean, technically they're cramming two books, you know, into this. But it's, you know, they didn't know that they were going to that they were going to leave it short. They're not giving themselves time to breathe when we, ha- as Matt said, when something like Gandalf is a fucking wizard, he's not dead. He's just fucking disappears again. But, you know, as far as they know, Gandalf just sacrificed himself for the fellowship. And because of how this movie's done, it doesn't take a pause to go with that. And therefore we just move on. Therefore we feel disjointed. We feel completely out of tone and out of sorts. Aragorn gives a speech saying how the destiny lies in the hands of Frodo and Frodo alone. And if there's one thing I like about the approach of this story, it's that it shows just how important this mission is. Like Everyone from Galadriel to Frodo to Aragorn, they're scared of what the failure of this mission means. And I kind of do feel the stakes of this. You know, I did like The Hobbit a lot, but I said at the end of that podcast, it seemed like that was like just this movie on on Red Bull. It was this whole series on Red Bull. Uh, here, we're actually feeling the moment. At least here, we are feeling it, not, a, not when uh, Gandalf dies. Uh, Matt, do you agree with that at all? No. That, that's my underlying statement for the next 30 minutes is just no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Like I, 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 turn, I go full grumpy cat from this point on. <laughs> as soon as they listen. You know, The Minds of Moria is arguably the best part of Fellowship of the Ring, and that's where this movie in particular, it's the equivalent of a cave-in, where it's like, I wish I was Gandalf, just let me die, just let me go. (laughs) (laughs) Boromir succumbs to greed and goes after the ring, and then, as if it was a trance, he wakes up, only to see that everybody has gone. 
Sam makes his way to the boat that Frodo is on, and Frodo says he's glad that he's sticking around with him. You mentioned the uh, the gay overtones. It's not as prominent here as it, as it will be later, but you do see that there's, a, there's some affection between these two, right, Matt? Yeah, although I get it more exclusively from Sam's yeah. side than I do something that's on equal footing. Although I love one of my favorite things. It's amazing that they can move in that canoe because they're rowing in opposite directions. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great catch. <laughs> we get more psychedelic scenes as orcs attack amongst a bunch of red light. Boromir returns to be a hero. But he gets an arrow in his chest for his troubles. He gives a goodbye slash apology speech before dying. And again, this is kind of treated more as an afterthought than I originally imagined it to be. I keep comparing it to that Jackson movie, but honestly, like, yeah. it's hard not to because it's like watching the Psycho remake. You're seeing the same exact scenes redone. It's just different actors. You know, how do you feel about this as opposed to the other one? Is it the other one better because it's original or is, you, or is this one better because it's a different approach? I feel at this point, I'm just kind of seeing, it's just kind of moving along in front of me and I'm not really getting any feeling from it. You know, the scene before, I'll say, this animation does not act as well as Sean Bean. I guess I can let it that. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's it it doesn't act as well as he does. But actually, I I go along with it. And one of the few parts that I'm like, okay, that was done pretty well, is Boromir's death. And maybe because it's you know he gets an arrow, stands up, gets an arrow, gets up, it's like five fucking arrows right in the chest. It's pretty harsh. But the entire time, I'm also resenting every time that I got to look at the freaking orcs and just how bad they look. Mm. mainly because of the inconsistency on the rotoscoping of it. It's done about as well as you can with this truncated runtime, considering so much of his backstory is removed, and mm. his motives are all just condensed in that. In the scene with Frodo, and also, I had a dream, which is not... I don't think that's from the book, and I know for damn sure that's not in the Peter Jackson movies. More Pursuit of the Fiddleship commences as they capture Merry and Pippin. There's another pursuit as the orcs are fighting and Sam and Frodo get away. Adam, you mentioned the animation. What is this tint that accompanies the scream every single time these orcs fight? You know, they they, they have this weird tint going on. Um, I they don't do, know. And I, I, and sometimes I, I like it. Sometimes I don't. It's a, it's it's off and on. And yeah, I I don't know if they're trying to either cover up some of the deficiencies, which would be understandable, or if it's there to provide a better contrast with the color of how they did the rotoscoping. That that's my assumption based on it. Yeah, sometimes it works, and sometimes the color comes across as just too garish and off-putting. If this has to do with the color grading, I am the wrong person to comment on it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Sam and Frodo, they get away, and they run into who else but Golem. Golem. It's quite obvious that Andy Serkis took from this performance, didn't he, guys? I, you know, I, I didn't realize it. I thought maybe he had done mostly his own thing, which he does. Don't get me wrong. It's a great performance that he does as Golem in the future movies, but this is the, the connotation, the pronunciation of words, everything. I know it's taken from the book, but this is, um, uh, what'd you guys think of Golem in this? I kind of wanted more of him, which sucks because if you like the two towers, there's a lot less two towers than there is fellowship of the ring material. It's like a 70, 30 split. Even the design of Golem, Jackson's ILM team kind of took like the the big eyes, the bone structure. You know, he's got a prolonged, larger than normal head. So th there's definitely some influences beyond just the vocal work that I think Circus kind of took from. Yeah, and I agree. It's 
I like this Gollum, and I didn't think I would, because I think out of the three of us, I'm the only one that liked Gollum last time. Uh, but I was also struck. I'm like, man, this it feels like what Circus does. And that doesn't mean to diminish Andy Circus's amazing fucking work in those movies. But it just seems like he looked at this and went, okay, I got a template. I'm going to make my own. I think you could see see how you got to his from this one, and, and I kind of dig it. Mm. Um, I, I was struck by how abrupt Gollum just shows up yeah. because other than that opening prologue, you better fucking paid attention. And I hope you can make that correlation that this is the same character. You know, we can because of, you know, years of going through it, but Gollum just fucking shows up. <laughs> Not That's a great point. Reason as to why. Yeah. But, he just, he just shows up looking different than he does. And even the slightly deformed, one that you look where he looks like, you know, he's got Doc Brown hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mary and Pippin, they get away, and they are picked up by Treebeard, who says he's not on anybody's side. Uh, this was distracting <laughs> to me. Seeing Treebeard was very distracting, because I believe he's the only character in this who's not rotoscoped. Um, he's fucking trees. Yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't care what adaptation of Lord of the Rings it is. I've never liked the ants. I think it's, you know, we say browbeaten. This is more like being branch beaten with the environmental <laughs> message that Tolkien was trying to perpetuate to society. I hate the trees in the books. I hate the trees in the fucking live action movie. And I hate the trees here. Wow. <laughs> like it, there's, oh my God. It, you know what, Garrett, if you wouldn't mute me, I'd fucking even quote Kevin Smith fucking movies. I'm talking about these trees. But it's just, I've just, I've never been into it. Like, and I understand that it's, I mean, it's the it's the rebels in the empire. It's nature fighting back against the machines. It's like, I get it. I just fucking hate it. God so does damn. that make sense the Ewoks? Yeah, pretty much. God damn, guys. Show me on this doll what trees did to you. Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I have x-rays that would sh would do wonders for you, given what happened. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gandalf reappears and goes over what happened to him and how he got away. They move toward Helm's Deep. He pursues King Theoden, who does not respond well to Gandalf's presence. But Gandalf does, come, does some convincing, and for a film that comes in in almost two and a half hours, we sure are accelerating towards a finish here, aren't we, guys? <laughs> yep. Like... For as long as this movie is, we're rushing at the end. It feels rushed because they had an idea of doing, you know, Bakshi wanted to do the three films kind of like Jackson did, exactly like Jackson did. He wanted to do, like the live action films did, he wanted to do three movies. Studio was like, no. John Borman wrote a script that was all three books combined in one. Bakshi said, fuck no, I'm not going to disrespect the material that way. And so we get a combination of... Two Towers and Fellowship of the Ring, as Matt said, you know, you're not going to get too much Two Towers here. But this just feels so rushed to a finish. I don't think, and we're going to find out at the end, they really don't know how to finish this thing. Nope, and there's no build-up to the Helm's Deep thing, like, no. whatsoever. That, that's a huge chunk of the book and the movie, the idea that they're so outnumbered. And then, basically, it's their, it's Custer's last stand, is basically what the what the Helm's Deep represents. And here, there's none of that. It's just another thing that has to happen. Um, mm -hmm. and the whole, you know, Theoden has no character in this at all, and he has a considerable amount in the Peter Jackson movies, I would have just not done the Two Towers if this is how you were going to handle it. Exactly. 
I mean, shoot, we technically don't have two towers that we're even going through. Yeah, we there's no Eye of Sauron whatsoever. No. no. And, you know, Sauron's, I mean, we get a glimpse of it really in the Fellowship part, but not even in the two towers portion of this movie. We don't get that, you know, return to there. And, mm-hmm. I mean, fuck, speaking of, you know, Mount Doom and that, like when these orcs, when these creatures show up, they're just, suddenly they're there. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they have an army. Meanwhile, Golem is talking about his precious and starts his diabolical plan to get the ring back. We cut to Helm's Deep, and this was a pretty decent battle. We get some exciting sword fights. I love the bombs moving through the air like the spirits at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> that was a nice, nice, cool series of shots there. This is the, I, I think this is pretty good stuff. Do you guys like the final battle at all, or are you guys just worn out and want this to end? For all my bitching about the build-up and the escalation, I think the actual animation is really well done. I like how the orcs look like they're descending from hell, basically, because with that red backdrop. Um, but again, I sort of have this problem with the Jax movie to a certain extent. The heroes can kill hundreds of orcs without getting a single scratch on them. Now, now, now granted, there's no Legolas surfing downstairs, <laughs> uh, yet, um, he's not like he's not Superman. Like you, you get the sense that Orlando Bloom's Legolas could have solved this whole war on his own. <laughs> but how overpowered he is! Um, but here, you know, I, I don't get the sense that they're ever in danger of losing, which you really get in the Jackson movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah you definitely get a sense of doom in those f- films for 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 sure. Yeah. Adam, yeah, yeah, for my, you know, for my part of this movie, and then. And it's possible that I've not come across the most positive, you know, throughout this discussion. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you know, but I put on here, you know, the I liked what we got with, with Theoden. As Matt said, he's not much of a character. But with Wormtongue and all that, I, I've always liked that scene every way that it's done. Helm's Deep, this battle, it's it, it's nicely done. I actually put on here, you know, man, this was a cool battle. Maybe the piss poor rotoscoping earlier was because it's not as shitty here. There's some parts that, you know, yeah. don't completely suck. Uh, I agree with that. In, in fact, you know, I, I do like some shots, like when there are a lot of ar- a, a lot of orcs and goblins. Like, Bakshi just, he was kind of ahead of the time when we see this backup. And, and again, this uh, Jackson's going to take this for his films as well. We have a lot of creatures in the same shot, and I didn't think you could do that in 1978, honestly. Mm-hmm. King Theoden says this won't be the end as Frodo starts casting doubt on whether he can do what's asked of him. The spider shalob makes a makes an appearance because we got to <laughs> shoehorn that in by the end of this thing. <laughs> Fucking spiders. <laughs> yeah, and again, this is something. It's actually more faithful technically than the Jackson movie because they move Shelob to Return of the King. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, J.K. Rowling stole this verbatim because she put a fucking spider in her second chapter. Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm realized with with uh, with us doing Potter, and I know giant spider has to do with it. We're doing it with these. You guys are bringing out my fucking arachnophobia pretty well here, <laughs> and I'm oh, not no. doing that movie. Eight-legged freaks is coming next. <laughs> Frodo and Sam they discover that Golem has been stalking them in an attempt to reclaim his ring, and they capture him but they spare his life in return for guidance to Mount Doom. So they negotiate with him. Then we at Helm's Deep, everybody stops the pursuit of the uh, orcs sent by Saruman. And then Gandalf, he arrives with absent riders of Rohan, and they destroy the orc army. And then we pretty much cut off right there. That's it. 
Yeah. And they, and they even say the words part one, like this is part one of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were going to. We'll, we'll get into that next week. But, yeah, this was yeah, going I, to be. That was not mark, a marketed shortcut. And if I was watching it back in the day, I probably would have been fucking pissed. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, like I said, Bakshi wanted to make this three films. You know what the studio told him? Could you imagine Marvel t- saying this? Nobody would pay for the first chapter of a book and nothing else. <laughs> they need a complete story. Uh, Go fucking <laughs> figure. And that does it, guys, for Lord of the Rings, 1978. Oh, boy, these scores are going to be so interesting. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Lord of the Rings? Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Is it possible to even score this movie considering how incomplete it feels? Like, yeah. I, I almost feel like I can't even give it a fair score because it's not 100% of what was fully intended. So with that being said, I'm kind of at a, at a loss when I was trying to figure out what the hell I was going to score this because I liked it more than the Rankin Bass Hobbit movie, which is crazy because it's almost an hour longer than that one is. I guess that was more fascinated by watching this as far as seeing the deviations from the book sort of seeing what Jackson would lift and tweak but as a story entirely unfinished nothing is fully resolved the the ring does not get destroyed which is the whole impetus of the journey uh Helm's Deep is only the climax because it's the big action scene in the first two books. Like, there's no real build-up to it like there is. Yeah, everything feels straightforward to a fault because this movie should have been straightforward to video. I'm going to... If I gave the, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit a three, if I still stand by that, I'm, I'm going to go, like, the softest five in the history of man. Wow. Adam, sir, I have a feeling you're going to go a little lower. That's a pretty decent assumption. I'll, uh, I'll give it there. You can bet on that. <laughs> I was looking forward to this after the discussion we had last week, and I didn't remember watching this other than knowing that I had seen it before. And it's probably a good fucking thing, because if I had remembered this movie, I would not have been looking forward to watching this. I, I had a pretty miserable time. There's no doubt about it. I don't care for the animation. I don't care for the rotoscoping. I don't see the storytelling elements that I wanted to see. I don't get why you take... Which, even in the 70s, was such a beloved fantasy story. Do it in this format and not try to make it the best you can. Because I don't think that they're trying to make it the best they can. I don't know what they were trying to do with it. The rotoscoping, whether it was done as a way to save money, finish a film quick, ineptitude on the animator's part, it just doesn't work. Whatever the reason is, it doesn't work. It looks like shit. And it deserves to get called out because there is great rotoscoping that's done. Check out other stuff, especially around this time. The animation as a whole, the voice acting, I just, there is almost nothing for me to like in this film. Um, even the parts that I want to laugh at, I resented watching this movie. That's how I felt about it. So it makes me apprehensive about returning to, to Rankin Bass for our animation finale. But for this one here, you know what? I enjoyed the Battle of Helm's Deep, and I enjoyed the wizard match early in the movie. So that's two points that I like. That's what I'm going to land on it. I'm giving this thing a fucking two. Yep. Two out of ten from Mr. Bunch. You know, peek behind the curtain. So we've been recording two podcasts a week for the last few weeks, and actually all year. But 
we for two series we've been doing, we've been recording two podcasts per week. And earlier this week, we recorded the one we're going to post later on the year. And then we're recording this one today. And I asked the guys, okay, are we all set to record on this particular day? And Adam's response was, yes, one of them was a pretty good time. The other one it took me three times to get through. I thought for sure it would have been that other movie before this <laughs> I one. Yep. I thought for sure you hated that one, but it was this one. So, God, talk about a swerve. Boy, oh, boy. You know, I, I'm podcasting with two very grumpy dudes here because, look, this is not anywhere close to the best Lord of the Rings material. And I think Bakshi himself would even say that. He wanted to make three films. He got what he got as a result of this script, and he did what he could with it. I think this movie comes off pretty decently. I have a pretty decent time with this. Look, the Balrog, terrible. The ending of this movie is so fucking truncated that it, it's, it throws you off. But I like the pacing of this. I like the characterizations in this. Anthony Daniels as Legolas, hey, you can't beat that. C-3PO as Legolas shooting arrows, fuck yeah. I, I think you guys are off your walkers when it comes to this. I, look, it's not the best. I think the battle scenes are cool. I think... A lot of the psychedelic portions of this is good. I think everything that Bakshi does well is on display in this. And I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen too much of his work. But from what I've seen, this displays what he does pretty well. I was sad when I heard that, you know, he had more on his mind and he was not given the go ahead. Because I think this could have been a learning experience for him. And I think he could have done good things with this. I think this is decent. It's not great though. Matt gave it a soft five. I'm giving it a soft six. I think there's... Enough Lord of the Rings stuff here where people will see this and say, yeah, he did that pretty well. And then there's other things, <clears throat> Balrog, where you're like, fuck, what were you thinking when you did this? How rushed were you? So six out of ten for me. All right. That does it for Lord of the Rings 1978. We are going right through this series one by one. Next week, we are finishing off our Lord of the Rings animation with the return of Rankin-Bass. Return of the King. Matt, have you seen the Return of the King, Rankin-Bass style? Nope, I have never seen it. All right. Oh, I, I can't, I'm not excited. I, can tell I was going to say, you gave last week's a terrible <laughs> score, so you can't be excited for what we're going to be talking unless about fucking, next week. Unless fucking, like, Frosty the Snowman shows up. <laughs> uh, like you know i picture them all you know the the black gate and those portals open up like in the avengers and it's rudolph and frosty and santa claus and just, <laughs> uh, but i'm not i'm not overly anticipating it. especially i looked at the fucking poster and i'm like oh fuck this <laughs> <laughs> there's the attitude to take into a uh a movie review for a podcast you know it's funny when we set these schedules i always imagine as i'm watching these things i i sometimes imagine what my co-hosts are thinking as they're watching them and i'm just imagining that matt just will not have a good time with this like as we were doing transformers i was watching those and i'm like god matt is struggling to get through these something tells me he will be struggling this <laughs> week adam sir what are you expecting with return of the king is this one that you have seen i think i've seen it but it's been so long ago that I have no memory whatsoever. So it's going to feel like a first watch for me unless some things come back. Like, hey, for all I know, the gates open to Helm's Deep and we do get Rudolph there. That it's just someone sorrowful. <laughs> Jesus. We got a Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer impressionist on there. And it was Yeah. You know, Yukon Jack shows up. You know, he's going to get his gold. 
All right. Um, well, but but I have almost no memory of it. I'm going to say, though, I think I'm looking forward to it again after this, but it's amazing because our scores are almost complete opposite from what they were last week. So I don't know. I'm open-minded, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I haven't seen this movie. I know there's a, like this one, there's a sordid history behind it, and we'll see. But I'm definitely looking forward to reviewing it with you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining me on this long journey to Mordor which will end with the theatrical Hobbit releases. Till next week, when we talk Return of the King, Rankin Bass style, come back next week to hear the one podcast that rules them all. Thank you, gentlemen. And he's gone again, like a wind in the grass. The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. And come again! Do I like riddles? Well, yes, after a fashion. Voice narration done by Adam. Edited by Garrett. We did not come here to waste words in treating with the likes of you. No living man may hinder me! No good robbing trolls. I do it for you, Frodo. Ah, this part I remember. My dearest hobbit, friend of friends. Action was called for. It seems I have no choice. The door is closed.
Now get some sleep, men. We found the perfect place to camp. Yeah, and Bakshi, well, I'll, I'll talk about how Bakshi feels about the live action at the end of this thing. So. Having all this in shadows was a great way to tell the story. How'd you guys feel about, about the preamble to this film? <laughs> all right. <laughs> who, who wants I'll to go, go first? Go. Uh, for me, it. <laughs> but I think here in this particular movie in 1978, for people who haven't picked up the book, this is a pretty good intro to what we're going to be getting. Even if, as Matt said, we're not getting a real good intro to the characters. Oh, someone fall? What was that? <laughs> uh, my my, my uh, glass just. Oh, okay. Uh, but 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 you know what caused it? Uh, Gandalf, because he's so overly animated. Frodo and company, they gather their bearings and make their way out. They are now attacked by... What exactly is this thing that's attacking them? I can't remember the name of it, and I was going to look it up before, and Which I put it fun. in. Yeah, when, when, by this octopus-looking thing once they get into uh, the mountain. They just call it the Watcher. Okay. They gather more people as they make their way through a snowstorm. Frodo and company, they gather their bearings and make their way out. They are now attacked by... What exactly is this thing that's attacking them? I can't remember the name of it, and I was going to look it up before, and I put it in... Yeah, by this octopus-looking thing once they get into Uh, the mountain. They just call it the Watcher. Okay. So they are now attacked by by this wa- the, by the uh, watcher. <laughs> they move toward Helm's Deep. He pursues King Theodon. Theodon? God, I'm going to have so many so much hard time with these names. Theodon, right? Theodon. Theodon. Yeah. Okay. He pursues King Theodon. <laughs> You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.